Richard Hollywood for Smart People for Tuesday, November 5th, 2019. I'm Nico, I'm your host, talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them. Happy Election Day, y'all. Hope you've all gone out there, performed your duty, (laughs) your civic duty, that is. Didn't mean for it to sound so gross. Uh, I haven't gone out yet and filled out my ballot, I admit. I have not yet had a say in my local municipality. I don't know who the hell's on the ballot. Uh, I'll just, uh, I don't know. (laughs) I'll just flip a coin (laughs) when I get there. I have no idea what's going on in local government. It is a a shocking blind spot for me. As someone that considers himself... Fairly well informed. I mean, I read the paper every day. You know, the New York Times, Politico, Washington Post. I'm familiar. I have a subscription to at least one of those services. Uh, but yeah, I, I couldn't tell you about Mrs. Johnson's pothole problem. No clue. <laughs> Local Girl Scout troop having a bake sale. I am the last to know about it. Those cookies are going to go to someone else. Hi, this is uh, my show about Hollywood, pop culture, music, movies, the works. You know how this goes. I want to start with the big story this weekend, which was the launch of a new streaming service. Of course, the streaming wars are in full swing. We talked about that last week. Disney Plus around the corner, HBO Max around the corner, Peacock from NBC Universal around the corner. Meanwhile, Netflix is putting out The Irishman and Marriage Story and Hulu's trying to get involved in the game and Amazon Prime is still in the mix. Streaming wars are here. Streaming media is the future of all media. And this week was uh, the debut of a major player. I'm, of course, talking about Apple TV Plus, which hit iPhones, iPads, and iPod Touches, I think they still make those, across the country this Friday. Let's talk Apple TV+. Plus. I signed up, or at least I got the free trial. I think my credit card's in there. I don't know when or how much Apple is going to charge me, but I assume my credit card is going to see something within the next month. Uh, I just gave them my email and said, here, have it. You already have my thumbprint. You're going to have my retinas pretty soon. You have the face ID. You're already listening to me through Siri. You got it all. Just steal my identity. The least of my issues is a $5 a month charge to watch a Jason Momoa fantasy series, right? (laughs) Here, have my money, Apple. Um, All right, here's, here's my take. I think the bad reviews have been grossly overstated. I think this narrative that Apple somehow botched this release and that the platform is doomed to fail is just unfair. Because, of course, it's too soon to tell, right? We're not privy to any of the subscription numbers. We're not privy to the financial information. We don't know if Apple views this as a success or failure. And I'm sure after three days, the Apple Corporation is not prepared to declare this platform a success or a failure. That would just be a stupid exercise. So obviously, it's too soon to tell. But I also think an undue amount of pressure is being put on this early slate of shows. And some of this is self-inflicted, right? 
Apple made a decision, a conscious decision, not to go after any licensed programming. They weren't going to make a bid for Friends. They weren't going to make a bid for Seinfeld. They weren't going to make a bid for the Big Bang Theory. They were going to go all in on originals. And because they have never made a lick of original programming before, unlike, say, Disney, whatever was on Apple TV Plus at launch was the entirety of your subscription. That is what you were paying for. That was a conscious decision. So, yes, when you launch a new streaming service with only five original shows on it, those five shows are going to face an extra level of scrutiny, especially if they star Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, and Steve Carell. That is to be expected, right? But here's a thought experiment for you. Imagine it's a Saturday afternoon, a rainy day, you're single. I'm not projecting. You're single. You got nothing going on. And you decide you want to binge watch a television show. Here is the blind taste test. Behind door number one. Unnamed Netflix series. Dropped on Friday. You've never heard of. Perhaps it stars Paul Rudd. Door number two, The Morning Show. I do not hesitate to choose the latter, and I assume you would feel the same way. I am way more interested in The Morning Show than I am the latest Netflix miniseries from Christina Applegate. I truly think replacement-level Netflix drama is worse than The Morning Show. In fact, significantly worse than The Morning Show. For All Mankind is better than most shit Netflix has put out in the last year. That's just the truth. And I get it. Netflix has the volume. They have the library. And they have the brand recognition to come out with a boatload of stinkers. But if we were to put the first five Netflix series under the same microscope we put the Apple TV series under, I don't think it would survive the critical consensus. Let's, as a matter of fact, look at the first five Netflix series. Let's let's do this for a second. It's a fun experiment. Ready? House of Cards. A hit. Lasted for six seasons. Got some Emmy love. I don't think it's a great show. Again, is the morning show that much worse? Both sort of adult soap operas, melodramatic, starring massive movie stars. About the same thing. Hemlock Grove. Lasted for three seasons. Horrendous horror series. Eli Roth involved in that. Orange is the New Black, the best show of the bunch. The only legitimate hit. Marco Polo lasted two seasons. Historical drama in the vein of Game of Thrones. Of course, never got to that level. Bloodline lasted three seasons at Netflix. Kyle Chandler, Linda Cardellini. Who's the guy from Star Wars? Uh, (laughs) Ben Mendelsohn. I watched the first season. I'm here to tell you it's not that great. And Sense8. Oh, my God. Sense8. From the Wachowskis. Sci-fi series lasted like two seasons. So here's my point. Netflix, to a certain extent, was allowed to fail and fail very publicly because it had Breaking Bad. It was allowed to fail with Hemlock Grove because it had friends in the office. Right? And so now they have this well-oiled machine. Every other Netflix miniseries is a hit, and no one thinks otherwise. It's like, oh, of course 
the great television behemoth. They're putting out the new Martin Scorsese movie. There were many bumps along the road. It's hard to find hit television shows. They don't just fall from trees. This idea that you can just start a television network out of thin air because you have the money and you have star power attached is completely untrue. HBO has been doing this for 30 years. AMC has been doing this for 20 years. The networks have been doing it for 60 to 70 years, NBC, CBS, ABC, and they're even struggling to find a show that resonates with people. It's hard to make hit television shows. You can't choose what your hits are. You can't choose Stranger Things. Stranger Things has to choose you. So this is going to be a long gestating period, right? It's going to take a while for Apple to find its footing. But as look, I, I watched three of these premieres. I did not watch the premiere of Dickinson. Uh, I watched The Morning Show. I watched For All Mankind. I watched C with Jason Momoa. Um, I thought one of them was very entertaining and I will continue to watch. I found one kind of boring but watchable and I found the third one horrendous. Uh, I expected about that level of quality. I didn't expect any more because at the end of the day, I understand this is a premium service that Apple is charging a small price for that's meant to sell iPhones. That's what this is. Apple had a billion dollars lying around. They said, eh, we might as well use it to make original programming. And we can use it to up iPhone sales. We can use it to up iPad sales. We're going to give you a year of Apple TV Plus free the second you buy an Apple device. That's the purpose of this. It is not Apple's bread and butter. It is a premium service on top of its already existing cash cow, which is the technology. Right? It's a hardware company, not a software company. And for a hardware company that has no experience making television shows, I was fairly impressed. So let's go down the line here and talk about some of these shows I watched over the weekend. I did not get to any episode twos, by the way. I only watched the pilot episodes. And believe you me, these are piloty as fuck. These are old school traditional network television pilots. Lots of exposition, lots of plot shoved into the premiere episode. And that is not always the greatest judge of character as far as television is concerned. These shows often take a long period of time to find their footing, find their voice, identify a rhythm. These are snap judgments. They are not complete judgments, but I will attempt to be as fair as possible here. Um, Here's what I observed, right? If Apple TV Plus has a brand, and I'm not sure they do yet, but if you were to draw some sort of through line, some connective tissue between these shows, here's what I've observed. Great cinematography, lots of idealism, and a shit ton of money. That's that's what it is, right? These shows are expensive, beautiful, and idealistic as fuck. If that's your thing, sign up for Apple TV Plus immediately. I'll admit, not always my thing, but if it's yours, Apple TV Plus, the platform for you. Let's start with the morning show. Obviously, the splashiest project of the three, the most expensive project of the three, Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell, massive movie stars on the small screen for the Apple Corporation. And by the way, it's not just those three. Those are, of course, the biggest names, but Billy Crudup is in this show. Um, Mark Duplass is in this show. 
a lot of like those guys just in the background doing stuff. Real expensive project. I think the reports were five million an episode. Is that correct? That's a crazy number. Even if it's exaggerated, it's it's somewhere in the multi millions per episode. Uh, Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon, I think, each cost two million an episode. So that's where a lot of the money is going. This is a really corny show. It's really corny. It's really soap operatic. It's over the top. A bunch of monologues about the importance of morning news shows, the importance of journalism, uh, the Me Too movement, lots of broad strokes. And the first thing it reminded me of, I'm watching this, and it's not just because of the subject matter, was Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom, which was on HBO a few years ago. And I'm pretty sure most people couldn't stand that show, right? I think I'm the only man in America that wishes The Newsroom was still on. Um <laughs> And I really don't know why. I just found it to be a totally entertaining workplace dramedy with that great Aaron Sorkin dialogue, a lot of walking, a lot of talking, a lot of big ideas about the power of the fourth estate. And sure, it was preachy and political and kind of silly and the romantic comedy stuff was annoying, but it was comfort food. And it was not quite the West Wing, but it was pretty damn close to the West Wing. And no one does corny, preachy, workplace dramedies like Aaron Sorkin. And the newsroom gave me a lot of those similar vibes, right? There are monologues in this show delivered by Jennifer Aniston about the power of journalism and doing the news, and that scene between her and Reese Witherspoon on the air was, uh, you know, definitely a pointed, on-the-nose exploration of, you know, the power of the press and why... Those powers shall not be infringed upon. And look, it's discount Sorkin. It is karaoke Sorkin. It's almost Sorkin. It gets very close to being the West Wing, but it's not. And it's just sort of a lesser version of the newsroom. Is that a bad thing? Fuck no. Because here's the thing. Who are we to complain? Who are we to complain as Reese Witherspoon is playing a blonde conservative firebrand named Bradley Jackson, screaming at a frat guy at a coal protest. You know? <laughs> Who are we to complain as Jennifer Aniston, in a drunken stupor, curls up in a ball of misery in her co-host's sex dungeon? Who are we to complain as Billy Crudup's evil executive lectures Mark Duplass about the sexiness of morning shows? Quote, nobody wants to watch a widow get fucked. That's a quote from the morning show. Hell, who are we to complain as Steve Carell smashes his television set with a fireplace poker? In the words of Russell Crowe in Gladiator, are you not entertained? What else do you want out of your television shows? Because this is all I want. Reese Witherspoon, going for it. Steve Carell, going for it. Jennifer Aniston, fucking going for it, man. Aniston is off the chain on this show. This is a meaty role for her. She, in in the course of an hour, 
must have cried a good 10 times, had like five explosive monologues, drinking the whole nine, man, sleep deprived. Give me more of this Aniston. And Steve Carell is just so delicious. Um, by the way, if you do not know the plot of the morning show, here's what it is. Jennifer Aniston, Steve Carell, co-hosts on a morning news program in the vein of Katie Couric and Matt Lauer. Steve Carell is explicitly modeled after Matt Lauer here. Um, they have been together on the air for 15 years, a rating success. Um, and then one day Steve Carell is accused of sexual misconduct in the workplace. He's fired from the morning show and Reese Witherspoon, who is this local news correspondent, like she's working in Arkansas or something. I don't even know what she does. Um, has slaved away in a small market. There's this viral clip of her yelling at some frat dude at a coal protest and Billy Crudup, who's the executive, decides to put her on the air for a national market, pairing her with Jennifer Aniston. It's ridiculous. But anyway, Steve Carell, accused of sexual misconduct, is at home in his multi-million dollar mansion with like his crisis team. Bunch of lawyers, PR people, etc. And in a fit of rage after seeing the accusations go public um steve carell says this incredible piece of dialogue quote i didn't rape anybody i didn't jizz in any plants (laughs) as an allusion to the harvey weinstein thing look man these people are just going for it they're just going for it screw you guys raining on the jennifer aniston parade Screw you critics who weren't entertained by the first episode of the morning show. At no point was I bored in that entire hour-long episode. It moved. It had snappy dialogue. These big movie stars are going way over the top with it, having a blast. Nothing wrong with the morning show. This is no worse than Empire, right? This is no worse than Shameless. This is no worse than House of Cards. No worse than a number of television soap operas. Of the 21st century. I'm into it. I'm going to keep watching. Screw you cynics. Uh, (laughs) For All Mankind. Is uh, another show I watched. Uh, This one stars Joel Kinnaman. And a bunch of other character actors. And asks the question. What if the Russians. Got to the moon first. And the space race never ended. It's period piece. It involves NASA. It was pitched to me. I think Joel Kinnaman said this in an interview a couple weeks ago as Mad Men in Outer Space. And I heard that and I'm like, yes, sign me up. Um, I would not use the same elevator pitch to describe the pilot. Um, maybe that's unfair. It's certainly a period piece. Um, it, it is not as immersive as Mad Men in terms of putting you in a time and place. Uh, and look, there's a lot of space talk. This is definitely a show about space. You know what? If I had to summarize the theme of For All Mankind in one word, it's that space is pretty awesome and that we should go there. (laughs) This is what I'm talking about with the idealism, though. It's the same sort of thing I noticed with the morning show. There is a speech, a monologue given by this guy, Eric Ladden, 
who uh, is like a recognizable character actor. He was on Boardwalk Empire. He was on the AMC show The Killing. He's one of those guys that could either be 55 or 15 and and neither would surprise you. You know what I mean? Very baby-faced. You've seen him before, right? He plays one of the hires up at NASA. He like runs the control room from Houston as Apollo 11 is doing its thing, right? And before the Apollo 11 launch, which in this alternative history takes place after the Russians have already gotten there, is talking about the importance of Apollo 11 and how the United States is considering shutting down NASA if Apollo 11 doesn't work because they lost the space race. Why continue to funnel money into this thing? And uh, it's a long monologue, and it it goes for it, for sure. I I mean, uh, Eric Gladden does say the words, this mission is about the future of space travel. It's about answering the question, is there life out there? So come on, men. Let's go to space. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not actually paraphrasing. You know what I mean? (laughs) Very on the nose. Very bright eyed. Very optimistic. Uh, It's a show about America. Look, I I found the premiere kind of boring. I'm I'm not going to lie to you. I I thought the craft was okay. Again, cinematography a million bucks this show looks professional feels like a movie feels a lot like apollo 13 um you know an old school space drama for adults it's good it's not great uh here's the thing it's one of those shows that if hbo made it it would be way better than it actually is you know what i'm saying like if the network had taken a few passes at the script and it had been like cycled through the HBO machine, it would be a hit television show. There's clearly something there. There's the seed of a good idea and the seed of a pretty compelling narrative. But Apple TV is behind it. And although there are veteran TV writers in the writer's room, and although there are credible actors and credible directors working on the show, Apple hasn't done this yet. We talked about this last week. The only narrative product Apple has ever produced is a Christmas commercial. And I guess a bunch of Steve Jobs things in the 90s. But it's hard making television. It's hard making film. Um, This has the feel of a movie. It looks like a movie. It sounds like a movie. Um, And with with a reliable, steady hand, it could really be something. But for now, it's just sort of a rough around the edges, kind of dragging interesting premise not bad though again the the criticisms are not fair this is an all right television show better than your average netflix series that's the important thing for me which leads me to our final show of the afternoon this um (laughs) this i would not put in the category of smarter than your average netflix I would not put this in the category of um, of, of HBO, Showtime, Cinemax. This is not even worthy of stars. I'm talking about C. S-E-E. Not the letter, not the ocean. C, like you do with your eyes. Stars Alfie Woodard, 
and of course Aquaman himself, Jason Momoa, who has perhaps the smallest range of any Hollywood leading man. I guess with the exception of Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel only plays bulldozers. Right? That those are the types of scripts he goes after. Bulldozer with a heart. That is the Vin Diesel archetype. He's he's pretty one trick. Jason Momoa, as far as I can tell, is bearded man that grunts. Those are the only parts Jason Momoa is interested in. Not, not that that's a bad thing. Like, sometimes it's good to stay in your lane. I wish some actors stayed in their lane more. Jason Momoa, though, for a guy that, I don't know, is a B-list actor? He leads an action franchise in Aquaman, which made money, right? For, for a guy like that to be so limited in his choices... Is quite quite astounding. Uh, Momoa is in here playing a variation of Cal Drogo from Game of Thrones. Uh, same beard, same grunting, same uh, tendencies to to cut people's heads off. <laughs> C is Apple TV Plus's attempt at their Game of Thrones. It's very explicitly what this is. I will read the description from IMDb. Far in a dystopian future, the human race has lost the sense of sight, and society has had to find new ways to interact, build, hunt, and survive. All of that is challenged when a set of twins is born with sight. High concept, fantasy light, witchcraft is involved, battles and wars are involved. It is shot in... Northern Canada with beautiful landscapes. Again, cinematography, top-notch, gorgeous-looking show, looks like a movie, and that is no surprise since it was directed by Francis Lawrence, who, uh, I don't know, credible Hollywood director? The Hunger Games franchise? I Am Legend? Red Sparrow? No great movies on that list, but I don't know. The guy can shoot an action set piece. But here's the guy I want to focus on. His name is Stephen Knight. Stephen Knight, the creator of C. Uh, Let me list some of his credits from both the big screen and the small. Bradley Cooper's Burnt. The Girl in the Spider's Web. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo sequel. (laughs) November Criminals. Starring uh, the dude from Baby Driver and Chloe Grace Moretz. Seventh Son. Pawn Sacrifice. Lock. Starring Tom Hardy in a car for 90 minutes. Most recently, Serenity. The Matthew McConaughey Anne Hathaway vehicle that we covered on Why Is This a Thing a few months ago. And of course, he is the creator of Peaky Blinders. The beloved Irish period piece from, I believe it's Netflix and the BBC. Killian Murphy, Tom Hardy, you know the cast of Peaky Blinders. I wouldn't call it a great show, but I would call it a show that people like. I was thinking about this. I'm trying to figure out Stephen Knight's voice. I'm trying to pin down what his brand is, because obviously he has a lot of credits. He's a very prolific screenwriter. Coincidentally, he's one of the co-creators of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. We talked about that on Why Is This a Thing when we talked about Serenity. Um, But the dude works a lot. And so I'm trying to figure out the through line. What connects these projects? And I still don't have an answer. But I can tell you this. 
Stephen Knight is the type of writer whose characters would pray to God and masturbate at the same time. <laughs> He's that type of writer. It hit me watching C. I'm I'm watching this scene. There's like this uh this bald blind queen from 400 years in the future who who sits in her palace tells her servants to leave her alone as she says a variation of the lord's prayer while also pleasuring herself and again like that takes a very specific type of writer that takes a very specific voice only stephen wright or Stephen Knight, excuse me, is doing that in mainstream Hollywood today. Only Stephen Knight has the gall to put that character in a screenplay. You know? <laughs> this show is awful. Of course, it's it's terrible. Um, Again, it looks really cool, but they don't like do anything with this concept. And I do actually think it's an interesting concept. There is something there, you know? Humanity goes blind. How do we react to that? It's cool. And to a certain extent, Stephen Knight does some clever things with the concept. Um, Like, there is no written word in this universe. In order to communicate words to one another, characters tie knots into string and space out those knots in order to communicate letters. So it's like its own form of Braille. And I dug that. Like, that's an interesting dystopian world building concept but from a filmmaking point of view francis lawrence doesn't do anything with the blind concept like you would think oh the characters can't see so maybe my point of view as a camera person should be as limited as the characters so you know if i were making it again i'm no director but like i wouldn't just make it look like lord of the rings I would want to communicate somehow visually that these characters have a very limited purview. They can only understand what is immediately in front of them. So to shoot a show with such a massive scope and lots of wide shots and a, and a constantly moving and sweeping camera feels disingenuous. I don't know. Just, just my little critique. And other than that, like the performances are just really bad. And the writing is super stiff and silly um and and just uh yeah not game of thrones how about that the jury is in and folks this is not the next game of thrones i know jason momoa uh is is quite sexy quite chiseled and adonis in his own right but cal drogo this is not uh a really bad show i'm sorry Apple TV Plus. Uh, not for me. I will not be continuing with C. I will not be continuing. Morning show, you have me for a couple episodes. For all mankind, I may even give you a second look. This is by far and away the worst show on the platform. I did not watch Dickinson. I apologize for that. That was the show. I also didn't watch, of course, Snoopy in Space. Or any of the other children's shows that were made available on the platform. Uh, but Dickinson was one of the big four tentpole shows that interested me the least. 
Um, for all I know, it's the best show on the platform. I'm not casting judgment. And I think the reviews have actually been fairly positive for Dickinson. Could be the highest rated show of the four. But it's very CW, very teen soap opera. It was a take on the Emily Dickinson story, but through that CW lens. Not my jam. I'm sure my sister would like it a lot. I'm sure teenage girls of a certain age and a certain generation could get down to Dickinson. I haven't given it a shot yet. Maybe I will. Um, I mean, I'm paying for it. <laughs> Might as well milk this subscription for all it's worth. Um, but I, I did not see it. So apologies. But if I were to rank them, the morning show easily number one for all mankind, number two and C, uh, don't see it, please <laughs> do everything in your power not to see it. Make like Momoa. And just close your eyes. <laughs> you know, the other thing about that show, it's really hard to stage a fight sequence when no one can see the other person. It's really tough. And I, like the show pulls it off. The set pieces are not bad, but it's just kind of awkward watching like a warrior sticking his hands out, hoping the enemy is in front of him. It's just kind of tough to fight somebody when you can't see them. But, uh, and yeah, also a lot of like, who's there? Who goes there? Who is it? Um, <laughs> good idea. Just not, not a good show. All right, let's take a break. When we return, wow, I can't believe we're doing this again. It's cultured. We'll be right back. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was two weeks ago on this very podcast that I first delivered my opinion on the Martin Scorsese Marvel controversy. That was two weeks ago here on Cultured. I did a rant about Scorsese, Coppola, and Marvel movies not being, quote, cinema. That was the hot button issue. And I remember at that time being burnt out by the story already. Like, that was the gist of my rant. It, the, the battle had raged on so vehemently on social media. Film Twitter was up in a tizzy for two whole weeks, and I thought at the time, at least in the back of my head, that my rant would serve as uh, a form of the last word. I thought we were done with it two weeks ago. I was burnt out. I felt like the story had played itself out a whole two weeks ago. But here we are again, two weeks later, in the motherfucking thick of it. In the thick of it. Y'all, let's... <laughs> this floored me last night. So, okay, let's let's rewind for a second. If you recall, two weeks ago, my defense of Coppola and Scorsese was, look, they're old men. They're brilliant old men, but they are nonetheless very old. And much like your racist grandfather on Thanksgiving, you gotta give old people a pass. Of course, Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola wouldn't enjoy Thor The Dark World. Of course, Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola wouldn't understand your infatuation with Ant-Man and the Wasp. And that's okay, right? That was my defense. 
you're Marvel, you're the biggest franchise in the world, why do you need Grandpa Marty's approval? That was my take. I didn't address Marty's comments specifically, because I didn't really think they needed addressing. Like, I just took them as an off-the-cuff, sort of flippant remark. He made it a magazine like a month ago, and he didn't give it too much thought. I, I have no doubt Marty believed the comment, but he had never done a close examination of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He hasn't seen Avengers Endgame. He hasn't seen any of the Iron Man movies. It doesn't matter, right? Like, I can agree or disagree with it, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's just an old man commenting on an industry that he's not involved in, which is what fine. Okay, so just leave it alone. That, that was my take. Leave it alone. Because I'm sure Marty would like to leave it alone as well. Well... <laughs> This is where I was mistaken. This is where I was so sorely mistaken. Because motherfucker wrote an op-ed. Motherfucker called the New York Times. (laughs) And wrote an op-ed. I cannot believe this. It is unbelievable to me. This hit... What what was it, 7 p.m. last night? This hit Twitter? I lost my shit. Martin Scorsese, this is the headline. New York fucking Times. Martin Scorsese, I said Marvel movies aren't cinema. Let me explain. And explain does he. Boy, does he explain himself. In vivid detail, might I add. This is a full-on assault of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is about as good a diss track as you could possibly dream up. Drive-by murder at the hands of Martin Scorsese. Rest in peace, November 4th, 2019. The MCU. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> I can't wait to dig into this. Um, but But here's the thing. This is the mistake I made two weeks ago. Marty wants to have this fight. He is all in on this battle. Those comments to Empire Magazine a month ago were not flippant and off the cuff. I assumed they were. I was wrong. I assumed, uh, Grandpa's just spouting off about healthcare again. Oh, no. These were calculated comments with a purpose. And I suspect, this is just the conspiracy theorist in me. No, actually, this is, sorry, the informed pop culture commentator in me. Saying these comments are about getting the Oscar. That's what this is. Martin Scorsese is campaigning for another Oscar. He is publicly bashing Marvel movies because he knows Academy voters hate them. Academy voters are quite envious of the multi-billion dollar franchise pictures. And they love Martin Scorsese. And this is music to their ears. Marty is preaching to the choir with this op-ed. And I'm totally cool with it. I would love to see Marty win another Oscar. And I have no doubt that he believes many of the things he says in this think piece, if not all the things he says in this think piece. But this is about a little more than the history of cinema. Obviously, when Marty talks about film, talks about film history, talks about the future of the medium and the importance of physical movie theaters, you best listen. But this is also kind of about a shiny trophy. (laughs) All right, let's dig into this article, nytimes.com. I said Marvel movies aren't cinema. Let me explain. Martin Scorsese in the opinion section. Well worth the price of the times. 
Just pay for it for a month and cancel and you will have gotten your money's worth. Um, Here's some of my favorite lines. Uh, First, he's talking about how if he were a younger man, as James Gunn implied on Instagram a few weeks ago, he may enjoy the Marvel movies. Here's the exact quote. And this is just poetry. Like a Kendrick Lamar diss track. I can't get enough of this. Uh... I know that if I were younger, if I'd come of age at a later time, I might have been excited by these pictures and maybe even wanted to make one myself. But I grew up when I did, and I developed a sense of movies, of what they were and what they could be, that was as far from the Marvel Universe as we on Earth are from Alpha Centauri. (laughs) Cold as ice. You know how far Alpha Centauri is? Like, I can't even see that from my house. (laughs) Oh, man. Such a burn. Here's another great one. Um, Marty's talking about the early days of cinema and how, at first, many were skeptical of movie making as an art form. Here is the quote. That was the key for us. It was an art form. There was some debate about that at the time, so we stood up for cinema as equal to literature or music or dance, and we came to understand that the art could be found in many different places and in just as many forms. Now, here's the key part of the sentence. (laughs) Marty goes on to just list movies, and I can pretty much guarantee you that you have not seen a single movie on this list, and I suspect you've maybe only heard of one or two at the most. And this is just an unbelievable flex. Here we go. Here's the list. The Steel Helmet by Sam Fuller and Persona by Ingmar Bergman. It's Always Fair Weather by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donan and Scorpio Rising by Kenneth Anger. Inverve Savi by Jean-Luc Godard and The Killers by Don Siegel. Or in the films of Alfred Hitchcock. I suppose you could say Hitchcock was his own franchise. At this point, y'all, Marty's just showing off. But he's earned it. The dude's like almost in his 80s. Perhaps the greatest film scholar we have. You're allowed to just list movies we've never heard of. I mean, just slip in a few like fake names, you know? The Orange Cat. <laughs> By... <laughs> By Billy Wilder. (laughs) You know? Just, uh, yes, of course, Francis Ford Coppola's It's Springtime in Venice. Whatever. Yeah, that's, sure. (laughs) Marty, we get it. You know more more about movies than we do. Such a great paragraph. But he says this about Hitchcock. Uh, I suppose you could say that was that Hitchcock was his own franchise or that he was our franchise. Every new Hitchcock picture was an event. To be in a packed house in one of those old theaters watching Rear Window was an extraordinary experience. It was an event created by the chemistry between the audience and the picture itself, and it was electrifying. And in a certain way, Hitchcock films were also like theme parks. I'm thinking of Strangers on a Train, in which the climax takes place on a merry-go-round at a real amusement park, and Psycho, which I saw 
at a midnight show on its opening day, an experience I will never forget. People want to be surprised and thrilled, and they weren't disappointed. 60 or 70 years later, we're still watching those pictures and marveling at them. But is it the thrills and the shocks that we keep going back to? I don't think so. The set pieces in North by Northwest are stunning, but they would be nothing more than a a succession of dynamic and elegant compositions and cuts without the painful emotions at the center of the story or the absolute lostness of Cary Grant's character. Point being, Hitchcock's not like Marvel movies. They are sequels in names, but they are remakes in spirit, he says about the MCU, and everything in them is officially officially sanctioned because it can't really be any other way. That's the nature of modern film franchises. Market researched, audience tested, vetted, modified, re-vetted, and remodified until they're ready for consumption. Shots fucking fired, bro. And now we get to my favorite part of the think piece, of the op-ed. This is just my favorite paragraph. Another way of putting it would be that they are everything that the films of Paul Thomas Anderson or Claire Denis or Spike Lee or Ari Aster or Catherine Bigelow or Wes Anderson are not in italics. When I watch a movie by any of those filmmakers... I know I'm going to see something absolutely new and be taken to unexpected and maybe even more unnameable areas of experience. Y'all, I could teach a college course on why the fuck Martin Scorsese picked these six people. (laughs) I could write books. I could read books. I could spend my whole life trying to figure out this mystery you know how some people are like second amendment lawyers first amendment lawyers and like they spend their entire life interpreting the meaning of one sentence so you spend time asking the question why did the founding fathers use a comma and not a period you know (laughs) i want to do that with this sentence what the hell man not that i hate the list I love the list. I love Marty even more for using this list of six filmmakers. Let's go down here one more time. Paul Thomas Anderson. All right. Perhaps the auteur of his generation. The closest we have to Stanley Kubrick in 2019. The closest we have to a Martin Scorsese. Right after the independent wave, his peak was really in the mid-2000s. Okay. Paul Thomas Anderson, I get it. Master of the medium. Claire Denis. Now we're pushing it right off the bat. (laughs) Claire Denis, brilliant French filmmaker, just directed High Life earlier this year. Mostly a foreign filmmaker. I don't think she's, this was, I think, her first English speaking film, right? High Life. Uh, Look, cool. (laughs) Actually, this one makes a lot more sense because... This was Marty's generation. She was born in 1946. Of that period, French New Wave inspired her, whatever. Okay, Claire Denis, I'm with you. Spike Lee, abso-fucking-lutely. Bold, visionary, distinct voice. You learn a lot about him when you watch his movies. And just iconic. I get it. If you want to give me a list of the most 
iconic visionary American filmmakers that are not necessarily the best American filmmakers, Spike Lee makes that top 10. Then we throw in Ari Aster. And this is... <laughs> this is an interesting one. I... I Look, I'm I'm uh I'm delighted that Martin Scorsese enjoys the work of Ari Aster. He's only made two movies as far as I can tell, or at least two uh major motion pictures distributed to a wide audience. They are Hereditary from 2018 and Midsommar from 2019. Both of those movies are highly disturbing horror films that I would not recommend to my worst enemy. They are impeccably made. Adam Hall loves them. Jabril loves them. We've talked about them at length on the Movie Hall of Fame. Um, They don't scream Martin Scorsese to me. So I I do wonder, did he just like uh, Google a list of A24 directors and pick Ari Aster? (laughs) Uh, that, That just baffled me. Again, I love that obviously Marty has such a full understanding of the film industry in 2019. I I love that. I love that Ari Aster is even on his radar because I'm sure he's not on Francis Ford Coppola's radar. And it just goes to show you what a great student of film Martin Scorsese is. Uh, But like, I don't know. Do you see Midsommar? (laughs) What do you think of the orgy scene? What do you think when the main heroine uh, confined her ex to a bear costume as he was burned alive for human sacrifice? I don't know. What were your thoughts? How about when the little girl in Hereditary lost her head, Marty? How about that scene? (laughs) Did it remind you of Raging Bull? Man, that's a bizarre one, man. Uh, <laughs> then we got Catherine Bigelow. All right. Cool. Hasn't made anything good in like seven years, but uh, sure, Catherine Bigelow. Also a little more mainstream than most of these choices, but I'll, I'll buy it. Zero Dark Thirty is awesome. And Wes Anderson, who again, visionary. I don't like the guy. Doesn't strike me like a Martin Scorsese guy, by the way. Uh I, I I don't know what he thought about Grand Budapest Hotel. But man, oh man, this list. <laughs> We're going to be studying this for years. I think, all right, this was obviously a, a well-written and eloquent uh, think piece. Something that only a true master of his craft like Martin Scorsese is capable of writing. I recommend that you read it. I recommend you take a lot of these lessons to heart. I think there is a little bit of like get off my lawn bullshit in here. And that's not like a total insult, but you know, uh, Marty's argument is that movie theaters have an obligation to champion cinema and that they should provide a safe space for filmmakers to flourish and can still make their money with the Marvel movies. But uh, the idea of the physical movie theater is eroding and it needs saving. And the Marvel movies are not helping that battle. They're only getting in the way. I personally buy that argument as a guy that enjoys going to the movies. I also acknowledge that movie theaters will be non-existent in 20 to 30 years. There will be like five movie theaters left on the planet. And 
That's the natural order of things. And the fact that Martin Scorsese is making The Irishman for Netflix, that it will be available to most viewers on the small screen before the big screen, is evidence of that. And I know Marty acknowledged it in the op-ed. He said, look, Netflix was the only studio that allowed us to make the movie we wanted to make. And he would have loved to have done it for a traditional studio. He would have loved to have done a traditional rollout in theaters, but it just wasn't possible given the budget these other studios offered him. I get it, man, but you're also kind of sleeping with the enemy. You're doing a deal with the devil because Netflix is going to be on the front lines of that battle against traditional movie theaters. They're already there. You know? Um... So it's a little disingenuous. It is. It's a little disingenuous. That being said, a beautiful piece, an eloquent piece, a piece that movie nerds like me will eat up with a silver spoon. But I also think, to a certain extent, it's a piece written in vain. Anyway, I'm off to watch Ant-Man 3. (laughs) All right, that is Cultured. You know I love you so very, very much. Go to the website, tmt.media, too many thoughts, media.com for more of my shenanigans. Why is this a thing this week? We did a movie called The O in Ohio, starring Paul Rudd and Danny DeVito. Just an all-time stinker. A buried romantic comedy that we had not heard of until this week. Man, was that a blast. That's available on Why Is This a Thing. Class of Stephen King will be available on the Movie Hall of Fame this Thursday. Adam and I induct one of eight Stephen King movies into the Movie Hall of Fame in honor of this weekend's premiere of Dr. Sleep. Uh, Nico show probably this week, too, and Two Cents Radio all on the website. Watch this space, too many thoughts, media.com. I love you so very, very much. And I do hope you come back next week. So once again, you and I can snuggle up together and get cultured. Love you. Love you.